This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You'll find the full episode available for purchase in the music section of the iTunes store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. For unlimited access to our back catalog, you can become a PEL citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership. Membership also includes access to discussion groups with other listeners, as well as ad-free versions of current episodes and a host of other bonus content, all available from a single, convenient feed that you can use with a variety of podcast apps. want to do the intro, Seth? Sure. You are listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast about philosophy by three guys who were once set on doing it professionally, but then thought better of it. I'm Seth Paskin, authentically experiencing myself as myself in Austin, Texas. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, ontically but not ontologically in Madison, Wisconsin. And this is Wes Allwin and I didn't prepare anything clever in Boston, Massachusetts. The question for episode 32 is what? What is the meaning of being? Sweet. How do we ask the question of the meaning of being? Why have we forgotten the question of the meaning of being? And whom are we reading? We are reading Martin Heidegger's Being and Time, or at least a very small portion of it. (laughs) That would be the introduction and chapters one and two. And did you guys get through three? No. Just one and two. At least one and two. And I cheated by listening to a good chunk of the Hubert Dreyfus Fall 2007 lectures that are available in a podcast form. And in fact, you can listen to them at double speed. They're great. He's like the dude. Since I was raised on my main continental prof in undergrad, Fritjof Bergman hated Heidegger, had no use for Heidegger at all. And so... My uh, education went straight from Hegel and Husserl to Sartre and was just taught that, yeah, Heidegger had nothing to add at all. So that I was very good to hear Hubert Dreyfus, who is like one of the preeminent Heidegger guys in the country, just really being a big Heidegger advocate and saying, oh, he's the most important philosopher, continental philosopher, at least of the 20th century, that, uh, you know, when Husserl is long forgotten, he's going to be there. He's the key dude who made the big discoveries. Yes. He discovered being. (laughs) I didn't realize those lectures were from 2007, as recently as 2007. Yes. His book, Being in the World, I have right here a commentary, is from the 80s or something. Sixth printing was 1995. I don't know when the first printing was. Anyway, but he talks about how, oh yeah, I got that wrong in my commentary and I got that wrong. And that was, (laughs) he's learned a lot. And even just during the lectures, he's reconsidering things, points of interpretation. It's a... Pretty cool. Even when we were in school, Dreyfus was one of the only American philosophers who was actively working on Heidegger, and certainly the most famous. We didn't get any Heidegger at UT, which is why I ended up writing my master's with a guy from the architecture department, because nobody in the department. (laughs) Uh, We had some in the intro uh, continental course. I had my hardcover of Being in Time from that course. The McCarry and Robertson translation. The black cover with just the white lettering. Yeah. 
Dreyfus says that that is the only one. There's a new one that's coming out. It'll be better. But this is the only one to get even an approximation of what's going on. It was extremely useful because Heidegger throws around just as much undefined terminology as Husserl did. But yet the translators are very good at telling you, say, the difference between ontic and ontological. I don't know if I want to already start this discussion, but... I'm just giving an example. I'm not telling the people what they mean. <laughs> yes. Well, I don't think he throws it around the way Husserl did in Cartesian Meditations. Yeah, I think he's, he is clearer than, than Husserl, I think. He definitely takes a long time to say anything, just like Husserl does. He's yeah, extremely just... methodical and giving the Greek and the Latin... Yeah, I think he's probably clear to me because since I had all that ancient Greek and was indoctrinated in the Heideggerian cult that is St. John's. So <laughs> I worshipped being for many years. Good for you. <laughs> and I was also pleased to hear about some of the lecture series that have been published by Heidegger from around the same time as Being in Time, that he has several books that are just notes of his lectures. And one of the that we were considering reading this time was the Basic Problems of Phenomenology that came out right after Being in Time. I read some of that. I read the beginning of that. And it talks about some of the same issues, but in a much more straightforward way, aimed at his students as opposed to aimed at posterity. You know, it still moves very slowly and is very meticulous, but it uh, just approaches things from some different points of view. There's another one, uh, Introduction to Metaphysics. That's a pretty famous lecture series that's from... 37 or something like that, uh, about 10 years after being in time, that it also goes over some of the same concepts, certainly. Yeah, just even looking at those made me think, okay, Heidegger is not the most difficult <laughs> writer that I've ever read, which is uh, one of the things that you might think just looking at being in time. I found it fully as difficult as the Cartesian meditations and Hegel's phenomenology or any, any of the other notorious mm. toughies. Which doesn't mean I didn't unravel all the layers of that onion, man. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> I went looking through my old notebooks to find my notes. So for the listeners who don't know, Heidegger is supposed to be my bailiwick. And like I said, I wrote my master's thesis on Heidegger, not on being in time. But I studied in Germany specifically to work on Heidegger and to work at the university where his archives were and Husserl's archives, for that matter. And I studied with the only living student of his who was teaching, this guy called Professor Dr. von Hermann. Oh. So that was why I went over there, and, and that's what I did when I was over there. In theory, I guess I'm the authority on this. But I went through my old notebooks to find my notes on being in time and realized that uh, they were all in German, that I had done... <laughs> <laughs> All my notebooks were in German. And in addition to my handwriting being such that I had a very hard time understanding what I had written, I realized that I was not even going to try to attempt to read my own thoughts in my graduate school German that <laughs> I was learning at the time. At the time I was there, von Herrmann was talking about some of Heidegger's later stuff, like about Holderlin and Rilke, poets. So his writing about poetry. I knew he wrote a lot about art. He wrote a lot about poetry, yeah. Later on in his life. Well, why don't I go ahead and give like a little quick sketch? Unless I can jump in with a bit of news before oh, we sure. actually get to the content here. Very important to our audience. Last night, Josh Casey, the guy who uh, is my, one of my many brothers-in-law who put up our WordPress page to start us off, broke the world record for whoopee cushions. <laughs> 
I shit you not. What does that mean? It means that he they have very precise requirements that you have to have a whole bunch of chairs and there's a set distance that they have to be apart. And then you put a whoopee cushion on each one. And how many can you sit on in 30 seconds? I believe wow. it was 30 seconds. And he broke the record. The record was 27 before and he got 31. And he could have done more, but he was only set up for that. It was part of this big juggling festival thing. And they had an official, it was very official. So he's in the Guinness. He will be in the Guinness Book, Book of World Records. Yes. Wow. You are related to greatness. <laughs> <laughs> And apparently, even if even if you listeners say, I could do more than that right now, uh, there's all this, like, to do anything with Guinness, there's all this uh, red tape you have to get through. Like, it took, a, like, a year for him to set up this official <laughs> trial thing. So you can't just do it in your house. And each whoopee cushion may, must make the, the whoopee cushion sound. If you sit on them too fast and they don't make the sound, it doesn't count. Mm. <laughs> so... Relate that to the mode of being of... Uh... Well, he wasn't just... <laughs> he wasn't just uh, getting the sound out of them. He was letting them reveal the sound that was within. And... <laughs> he was letting them reveal themselves as they are in themselves. <laughs> uh, well, congratulations to Josh. Yes, congrats, Josh. Okay. There are plenty of places on the web that you can go and get kind of a detailed biography of of Heidegger, but I want to kind of call out a few highlights just to put some context so that you'll be able to understand some of the things when people talk about early and late Heidegger and the fact that he joined the Nazi party and what that means and why that got so many people upset and so on. So Heidegger was born in a very small town in southern Germany just before tail end of the 19th century. And he always lived in and around southern Germany in, in this small town. He was very, very provincial. And that's important because it influences the way he talks and thinks about things. Um, he never lived in a big city, never wanted to go to a big city, never wanted to teach at a big university. And so throughout all of his work, you will see him using examples and metaphors and so forth that are all taken from pastoral, rural life. So there's a lot of people who have called him provincial and naive in that respect, but that just speaks to kind of where he's from and what he did. He was a very bright student. Well, and he, he liked to talk to the peasants, says Dreyfus. Philosophers are, you know, academics and rich people in general are too infected by culture to sort of have pure experience or something like that. So being able to chat with the peasants regularly was a a specific reason why he wouldn't move to Berlin or something. is This is a Hubert Dreyfus story anyway. Yeah, well, Dreyfus traveled over there and met him while he was still alive, so he may have some anecdotes. But there's no doubt that the person who works the land is kind of his model to some extent for what constitutes authentic existence, and he never wanted to lose touch with that. And when we see what that means in the context of being in time, it'll make more sense. But it will also make sense that only somebody who came from a background like that would ever write a book that talked about this stuff in this way. So he was a bright student, obviously. He was born Catholic but married a Protestant woman. And there's a lot of people that make a lot out of his... He studied at one point for the priesthood, but decided against it. So people will read all different kinds of religious things into his work. Again, background, it's not super necessary. He was a student of Husserl's, and in fact, studied with Husserl, 
and then went to another university where he taught for a while. And when Husserl retired, Husserl was at the University of Freiburg. Heidegger came back and took his chair in philosophy at the University of Freiburg. During the time that he was there was the time of the rise of National Socialism, and he was elected by the other faculty members to be the rector of the university, which is essentially the representative of the university to the broader social world. And he joined the Nazi party. And there are a number of some more well-documented than others issues, including some poor treatment of Husserl and some things that he wrote talking about National Socialism that made it very difficult for a lot of people to understand why he would be affiliated with that and also use it to discredit his philosophical thinking. While the Nazis were still in party, he resigned. He didn't resign from the party, but he resigned as rector and and actually went into exile. They eventually decided that he was not ideologically suited, compatible with their ideology, and he ended the war in a work camp, uh, uh, digging ditches, I mean, and... um, then basically was banned by the Allied powers after the war from teaching for about three or four years. Basically, that whole experience changed his way of thinking. And in the latter half of his life, instead of writing a sort of systematic philosophy like you see in Being in Time, he wrote more shorter essays, taught a lot, and focused more on what Mark was saying about poetry, art, He went back and wrote more about the Greeks. And the difference between the earlier Heidegger and the later Heidegger is sometimes called the turn, dikera. I think in general you can say he never really changed what he was trying to accomplish, which was this obsession he had with talking about the meaning of being. But he realized that the program that being in time represented really wasn't something that could be accomplished. And just a couple things about that. Being in Time was intended to be a much bigger book than it actually is. There were several sections with multiple subsections, and he had not completed the book, but he was sort of forced to publish what he had written in order to get tenure and become a full-fledged professor because he hadn't been publishing anything. He'd just been teaching. What the turn represents is kind of this idea that he realized that the exercise that he was undertaking or the project of being in time wasn't really something that could be accomplished. Now, what's interesting is that Heidegger was an amazingly arrogant person. You can look at the anecdotes and whatever, but he never took responsibility. He never said he made mistakes. He never took accountability for anything that he did. And even when he talks about being in time, he uses this, he said something like, it was realized that the thinking was not up to the task of, you know, it's some very, very passive construction for why (laughs) being in time couldn't be completed. Mistakes were made. Mistakes were made, exactly. And this is one of the things that really frustrated people, particularly his students like Hannah Arendt, who was a real devotee of Heidegger and obviously somebody who was super smart and very well-versed in what happened during the war. And who he had an affair with. You know, I don't know how that is stated as a fact, and it's not entirely clear to me. I think there's some biography out there that claims that there's fact proof for it, but nobody could ever say that they did have an affair. Well, if it's in Wikipedia, it must be true. Yeah, but she even pleaded with him to at least renounce what he did, and he refused. I mean, he's kind of a prick. And there's some cool stuff out on YouTube. You can find some, like te- like a television interview with him, and you can see him speak. And even with the subtitles, you realize that he's just completely out of touch. 
for somebody who supposedly liked to hang out with peasants, he talks like he's from another planet. And nobody watching that who was at all a normal person or a normal German would understand what he was talking about. It's Bob Dylan. That being said, being in time in German, the way he uses language, it's very innovative and it's new and it's challenging, but it is a lot easier to keep things straight. Not easier to understand what's being said, but it's easier to keep things straight than it is in translation. So all these problems that the translators have keeping things straight, a lot of that stuff is much more clear in German just because of the way the words are constructed. And, the, and he says, you know, I'm going to use this word to mean this. Right, because they're tinker toy words, right? Because it's like sorgen and base organ, and those are that's care and concern. You can see that they're just about the same in German, and that would mean something to the German speaker. Whereas for us, those are artificial terms. Yes, just for the record, Dasein, for example, is a word that's very common in German that he uses in a kind of weird and twisted way and tries to tease out all this meaning. But being in the world is not a common phrase. And the the construction in German looks weird in German, but at least you know what he's talking about. You, at least you, you can differentiate it because it's a big hyphenated clause in der Weltsein. So for listeners who go out and look him up on the web, you're going to see all kinds of crazy stuff about. There was a lot of controversy in the 60s and 70s. He was very influential to particularly French philosophy, but there was a lot of hostility towards him. So basically what you have is somebody who is very, very smart, very, very well educated, trying to tackle an extremely difficult subject, but at the same time with a very, very, very limited worldview that he generalized and attempted to claim, and somebody who was extremely naive politically and socially. But I think still one of the more profound thinkers. And uh, you'll see when we talk in a little bit about what the project of Being in Time is and what he tries to accomplish, why it spoke to me so personally. This was the book that changed my life philosophically. He was the thinker that changed my life philosophically. Was it chapters one and two that changed your life philosophically? <laughs> will we get to see the change? Yes. <laughs> yes, you will. Okay. So the whole beginning part is here's his methodology. Here's why we should talk about being and things like that. But the whole second half of the book is more what was really the foundations of existentialism, right? Is, is what counts as an ethics for him of being an authentic person and just talking about your ways of being, having to do with your way of orienting yourself in the world in the way that Sartre or somebody like that would talk about it. Yes. But as a qualifier, I don't think anybody would tell you that that counts as an ethics for Heidegger. In fact, that's a huge problem that he never articulated anything with kind of a positive value system like that. So let me set the stage for what I think he's trying to do here and what he thinks the problem is. We have the history of philosophy that's spending all of this time trying to figure out metaphysics. And metaphysics, he says, is really the study of beings. His concern is to say, look, we're doing metaphysics. We're talking about, you know, what is a person? What is an object? What is an idea? What is God? And we haven't stopped to ask ourselves the question of what is the meaning of being? And you can kind of boil that down to this. When we say what is, we have an implicit understanding of the word is. And we never really fully articulate what that is, but we use it all the time. So when we say, well, what is the subject? Or what is an idea? Or what is God? What we really should be asking is, what is is? What do we mean when we say is? 
And he says, we presuppose something by that. We have a pre, sort of what you might call pre-ontological or pre-theoretical understanding, but we never really fully articulate it. And what happens is we then end up perverting or making assumptions about the other part of the question when we make theoretical assertions like the subject is this or, you know, God is that. And so he said, through the history of philosophy, you have in Plato, it's the idea. In the medieval philosophy, it's substance or substantia. In modern philosophy, it's the subject or objectivity. And in Nietzsche, it's the will to power. Basically, all of those things are a stand-in for us. Why are you saying they're a stand-in for us? They're a stand-in because if somebody says, well, what is being with a capital B? Mm-hmm. And you say, oh, well, it's substance. And he's saying, well, substance is one way in which, that we think of beings, that's the being of beings, but that's not being with a capital B. That's the being of certain beings. So in, in other words, he's trying to say, if you want to talk abstractly about being, not the being of an entity, but being in itself or being abstract, we haven't done that. So we just use the being of something as a stand-in for it. And what's the problem with just saying it's just basic and indefinable, the fact that we use it all the time, you know, there's really no more to say about it. It's just is identity. It's the highest genus. Schopenhauer just gave us a version of this. If we want to talk about distinct for Schopenhauer realms, his interpretation of the fourfold root of the principle of sufficient reason. So we could talk about what kind of existence objects have in our experience, or we could talk about what kind of existence the paralogisms of logic have, but there's no reason to think that the fact that we use the word is for both of them, that they have anything in common. It's a completely empty, abstract concept to shove everything into. So I think Heidegger would say there's a couple things wrong with that. The first thing is that to just say that it's empty is saying something about it. So since it's there and we feel the need to say something about it and we have some sort of quasi- pre-theoretical understanding, we ought to investigate it. I think the other part of it is that he thinks the fact that we haven't done this, by not thinking through this properly, we've got ourselves caught in the modern metaphysics of objectivity. Descartes sort of derailed Western thinking, according to Heidegger, for hundreds and hundreds of years, because he didn't ask the question of what the meaning of being was. He took this medieval conception and kind of twisted it around a little bit. And so what you end up with, and I alluded to this when we talked about Husserl, is you end up with people who are taking this metaphysics of subjectivity or objectivity and trying to torture the world out of it. By not asking the right questions, by not actually looking at what the meaning of being is, we've put ourselves in a situation where we're falsely set up this dichotomy between this transcendental subjective self and the so-called objective real world. And then philosophy spent a hundred years spinning its wheels, trying to figure out how to bridge the gap between the two. When in fact, if we had done what we should have been doing all along, we'd have realized there was no gap. And that in short is why this book was so important to me is because I never was happy with or felt comfortable with, we need to prove the existence of the external world and prove that this is really the thing I'm really looking at is really it in itself and the thing in itself versus the appearance or the phenomena and so on and so forth. And I always thought, this is just ridiculous. 
I mean, how can you doubt the existence of the world? That doesn't even make sense. Putting yourself in that position just seems ludicrous to me. And Heidegger gave me a way to think about that. And that's why this was so important to me. Since you've thrown that out, I think maybe even though this is not chronologically where the book goes, maybe we should briefly discuss the epistemological jump here because we had something like it in Husserl, even though if you listen to Dreyfus, for one, he thinks that Husserl has all the same problems that Descartes and Kant did, this subjective-objective distinction and trying to get beyond the sphere of my transcendental subjectivity. And certainly Husserl talks that way, but in at least my analysis of it last time was that I, I thought he had a lot of the same insights in that work, at least, which came out after Being in Time did, but that you see in Being in Time, that perception is not a matter of, like Schopenhauer talks about, that our inner sense is focusing on this sort of stream of data that has been fed in from the outer sense, that that's all just, according to Heidegger, is a theory that doesn't pay attention to the phenomena at all. And I think Husserl agrees with that, that you have to pay attention to what experience is actually like. And for both of these guys, a perception, for instance, actually gets a hold of the thing in the world there. It is transcendent in itself. It's not a matter of us being aware of the contents of our consciousness and those relate somehow to something outside. We are aware of the outside, and that's just primordial. So it seems like that was something that comes out of just phenomenology. That That's not specifically Heidegger, not that we have to dwell on that particular issue for the whole podcast. I think that's a fair point. And I, obviously, Heidegger dedicated being in time to Husserl, and he studied with him. And he was very influenced by at least the Husserl that we didn't read. <laughs> I don't think he had a very high opinion of the later work, the Cartesian Meditations. If you think about the difference between the two, they both want to take the givenness of the world and that taking the world as given is the starting point for doing philosophy. I think they diverge at that point in that Husserl wants to use phenomenology or his phenomenological approach as a way to do some kind of a scientific-like discovery of first principles, founding of the sciences, you know, so on. And his process is to define something, what he calls the transcendental subject, which then is able to partake in the epoche and start to do the work, so to speak, of looking at the phenomena as contents of consciousness. And you have that whole intentional structure and all that kind of thing. Yeah, folks are going to have to just listen to the previous episode. We're not going to re-explain the epoche in any length here. Yes, I'll just say this. What Husserl does from the phenomena, the steps he takes, which are to say... The phenomena are contents of my consciousness, and I can examine them in a certain way in order to be able to learn things and start you know, uncovering the, the structure of experience. Mm -hmm. Heidegger's response to that is, as soon as you use the word consciousness, as soon as you call them contents or objects, as soon as you assume this intentional structure of you as the subject and them as objects of your consciousness, you have basically made the same mistake as Descartes. And that is why it's really torturous in the first part of Being in Time, where he's trying to say, I want to take the phenomena, but I want to let the phenomena to tell me what the being of the thing that is experiencing this phenomena, so to speak, is. So don't assume the subject. Don't assume that you're any type of thing. What does the phenomena tell you? And he says, obviously, because we're starting from our own point, we're starting in our own body or starting in our own place in the world and all that. We can't escape that. 
So the only way for us to get started is to kind of interrogate ourselves and, and look at what it is that we, meaning human beings, and the word he uses in the book is Dasein. What is the being of Dasein? That's the place we're going to start. We're not going to assume that Dasein is a subject and that the world is this set of phenomenal experience, so to speak. We're just going to ask ourselves, what in the world is Dasein, that being? And one of the first things he says is, it's not substance. That's not what the phenomena tell us. I got to say, it wasn't hard for me to figure out what points he was trying to make in this respect in here, but it was not always clear what his argument for them. I mean, with phenomenology, it's always going to be a matter of observation, careful observation. But in a certain ways, that makes you think, oh, I don't have to give an argument. I'm just giving careful observations. But of course, mm -hmm. if you want other people to observe the same thing that you do, I mean, Husserl says, okay, stop right now. Stop imposing a theory on what you're seeing right now. Don't say, I'm seeing an object in the external world. Just describe the perceptions themselves and the fact that they point at other perceptions, they have certain structures, certain horizon to it. There's a certain structure of your experience. Let's just call it the transcendental ego, you know, the thing that seems to connect together all these different experiences. That is repeatable. That's the appeal of phenomenology. It's experimentation without having to get out of your chair. But Heidegger seems to have a very different idea of even what the phenomena are and how you go about examining them. It's certainly not just restricted to the here and now. In fact, that's the big mistake, right, that Husserl makes, that we need to analyze Dasein, analyze the human being along the horizon of time, whatever that ends up meaning. Right. One way we could think about this, or one way we could talk about it, is that Heidegger would say that the approach that Husserl takes, that in itself, that act what we might call inquiry or the attempt to know is just one way that we as Dasein, as human beings, exist in the world. And it, there's no value judgment. It's not good or bad, but it certainly isn't the most fundamental. You can't do that exercise on the phenomena without having first some other kind of relationship in place. It's not as though you start with the bracketing or you start with the raw phenomena, you already have a world that's given to you, and it's given to you in a way that's much more direct and what you might call, again, pre-theoretical. I'm just going to use that term mm -hmm. for the time being. So the famous example in the book, and I'll try to use this to explain this point, and we'll see if it works or not, is he talks about hammering. If you're using a hammer and you're hammering a nail, you are not thinking of the hammer or using the hammer or looking at the hammer as an object for inquiry where you're trying to identify its properties or its traits, and you don't take your experience in using the hammer and try to break it into its constituent parts and talk about what those might be. You just use the hammer. You just hammer nails, and you're doing it for a purpose. Specifically, you're trying to build something. Let's say you're trying to build a chair. So your activity has a purpose a towards which and you are in no way, shape, or form theoretically or abstractly removed from that experience. Now, what you can do is you can stop for a second, and you can look at the hammer as an object, and you can separate yourself from it and turn it into some kind of field for visual experience. And when you get to the point where you're just focused on your perception and you're trying to do the sorts of thing that Husserl was talking about or make any kind of proposition, like the cat is on the mat or something like that, you are 
doing something that is an essential human activity, but you are already way abstracted from some something that you had to A, presuppose, that had to already be there for you to take that stance, and B, that is more, I hate to use the word primordial, but maybe more primary. Your being in the world, your existing amongst things and using things and functioning in the world is prior to your stepping back and viewing things and trying to comprehend them or know them or categorize them or classify them. And to him, that was one of the fundamental things that you discover when you think about what's the being of Dasein. Well, part of the being of Dasein is being in the world, and part of being in the world is using stuff and doing things. And all of that is prior to any kind of theoretical stance of knowing or apprehending or anything like that. Thanks for listening to this Partially Examined Life episode preview. If you're enjoying it so far, you can purchase the full episode in the music section of the iTunes store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. For unlimited access to our back catalog, you can become a PEL citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership. Membership also includes access to discussion groups with other listeners, as well as ad-free versions of current episodes and a host of other bonus content all available from a single, convenient feed that you can use with a variety of podcast apps.